If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and we'll be in chapter one. That's one of those hard to find books. It's uh, before the Psalms and the Proverbs. It's right after the book of Ezra, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. One of the things you may have noticed in your worship bulletin this morning that's a little new is a discussion and a devotion guide. And so let me take just a moment and tell you about this. Uh, On the front side, you're going to find some questions that go along with the sermon that we'll be preaching this morning. And so if you take these questions, they're going to broaden the sermon a little bit and they're going to deepen the subject matter a little bit. And we've set this up so that you can sit around with others who have attended the worship service and sometime during the week you could have a 30-minute or a one-hour discussion of what was preached on Sunday to help it really set down some roots in your life. And so we're going to be doing this uh, every week, uh, at least for the next year, probably much beyond that. And then on the bottom of the front page, you're going to notice a, um, a Bible reading plan. Uh, last January, we did 100 days through the Bible. So many people in our church participated in that reading plan. We had such good feedback. People said it was great to have an assigned passage to read. Uh, Some people said that they had struggled with devotions through the years, but when they had an assigned passage, that it just helped them to stay faithful. Others mentioned how encouraging it was to be able to know that your family or your friends or your Sunday school class, that they were reading the same passages that you were reading so you could discuss with them. And so we've decided that we're just going to do that every week. And so every week we will assign Uh, Just five short, brief Bible passages for you to read this next week. Some of you are on your own devotion plan, and that's fine. You keep doing what you've been doing. But this will serve you. Use this, and let's read through the Bible together. This is going to jump from book to book, and we're going to be mostly in the New Testament, a little bit in the Old Testament. And so you'll have that Bible reading every week. And then if you turn to the back, there are discussion questions devotion questions for each of those Bible readings. And so you'll read the passage. And so on Tuesday this week, if you do this, you'll read 1 John chapter 1. 10 verses, pretty brief, easy to read. But then you'll turn to the back and under Tuesday, 1 John chapter 1, it will give you some questions that you can ask yourself and you can use in your prayer time to really help the devotion be meaningful to you. And so I hope this will serve you. I hope it'll help make the messages that we preach have more of an impact in your life and will encourage your walk with the Lord. So we'll say more about that from time to time, but let's get right into the message this morning. Nehemiah chapter one, a new series for us. I want to share over the next six weeks, if the Lord allows, how it is that we can be successful for the kingdom of God. Whatever it is God may have called you to do in life, in family, in your marriage, how can you achieve success? And Nehemiah will show us the answers to that question. You know, everybody in life wants to be successful. Uh, Everybody wants to excel. Everybody wants to land in a happy place. And I know that looks different for different people, and it looks different at different seasons of our lives, but none of us want to fail. None of us want to flop or fizzle or flounder or get an F in any other way. We want to succeed. And I believe that's a God-given desire. In in fact, if you look through the Bible over and over, 
you will find Bible verses that tell us how it is that we can succeed. And the reason you find so many of those is because God has given us the desire to succeed. And so in his word, he gives us the instructions for how to do that. And I'm not going to go through the verses this morning. We just don't have time. But we post all of those in the full message outline that you can find at noeldeer.com. So if you want to go there, it's got all the verses listed there. Many of the verses listed in that will encourage you. But throughout the Bible, it tells us, here's how to be successful. Here's how to be successful because God has given us this built-in desire to want to be successful. So that brings two questions uh, to the table this morning. The first is simply, how can we be successful in whatever it is God has called us to do? How can we be successful? And the second question, equally as important, if not more so, Where is Jesus in all of this? Uh, Because I I don't want us just to have a self-help message series. That that, that will not be what we'll do over the next six weeks. We're going to focus on Jesus. And the book of Nehemiah is about success. It gives us a model for success that has been used in ministries. It's a model that's been used by business leaders and political leaders for generations. It's the best model for success you'll find anywhere. But it's also a message about Jesus. The book of Nehemiah is about Jesus, and I want you to see that as we go through this as well. So we'll handle the Jesus question at the end of the message. Let's begin with how Nehemiah was successful and how we can be successful. Uh, Nehemiah was in a very difficult situation, as we'll see in a moment. He had great challenges in, in front of him. It seemed like the task that God had called him to do was an impossible task. But Nehemiah found a way. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the obstacles that he faced, some of the strategies that he used. We're going to look upon how he leaned on the Lord, and we're going to learn how we too can have success. Now, to get into this, we really need to understand the setting of the book. Uh, Who is Nehemiah? Why does he have this problem? Where is he living? All of that's important to what we'll be doing over the next six weeks. And so just, I know some of you aren't history buffs, but just hang with me for a few minutes and let me share some of this. First of all, this may surprise you, but Nehemiah is the last book in the Old Testament. Now you're thinking, Pastor, it's not the last book in my Old Testament. It's not even halfway through my Old Testament, but it is. It's the last book in the Old Testament chronologically. I know there are a lot of books that come after it, Esther and then Proverbs and Psalms, the wisdom literature, the prophetic literature. But the last thing that happened chronologically in all the Old Testament is the book of Nehemiah. In fact, when you read Nehemiah 13, the last chapter in this book, you are finished with the Old Testament chronologically. After that, there were 400 years of just silence. And then Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. So the last part of the Old Testament, Nehemiah 13, the very next thing that happens, Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament, the Gospels, this is the end of the story. Even the history book, the historical book of Esther that comes after Nehemiah, chronologically happened before Nehemiah. Just like the New Testament is largely arranged by genre of literature and not by chronology, so the Old Testament is also arranged like this. And and there are some complicated intricacies in that, but just, just understand today, this is the last chronological book 
the last things that happen in the Old Testament before Jesus arrives. Now, where was Nehemiah and why was he there? And uh, Andre referred to this uh, in a scripture passage that he read just a moment or two ago. Uh, but we've got to go all the way back to the nation of Israel in Israel in, uh, and around Jerusalem. And so the nation was there and God spoke to them through the prophet Jeremiah and told them to follow his instructions or God would judge them. And Nehemiah said, the judgment of the Lord is coming and you are going to be taken over by a foreign government and you are going to be taken as exiles away from Jerusalem and for 70 years you're going to be separated from your home turf. And just as Jeremiah had prophesied, it happened. The people continued to rebel against God. God's judgment came. This was uh, 586 BC. The judgment came. The Babylonians invaded Judah. Uh, uh, Israel was divided into two sections. One of the sections had been defeated a few years earlier. Now it was just Jerusalem and Judah that was left. That really was Israel at the time. And so in 586, the Babylonians come in and they destroy the city. They take over the land and all of the surviving Jews that they could round up, they put them in chains and they march them to Babylon, which is in modern day Iran. So you imagine walking from Israel to Iran, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty difficult march uh, in chains, across deserts, but that's what happened. Now, God had said through Jeremiah that the judgment would last only 70 years. In fact, let me just read to you uh, how this is recorded in the historical book of 2 Chronicles. It says in chapter 36, he deported those who escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they became servants to him and his sons until the rise of the Persian kingdom. So the Babylonians take over. They take the Jews out of Israel all the way to Babylon, and there they are under the, uh, the, the rulership of these Babylonians until the Persians are going to come, which, which happened some years later. Uh, then it goes on to say, in verse 22 of, of, Nehemiah, of 2 Chronicles 36, it says, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord, <clears throat> spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of the king, of, uh, king Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom. This is what King Cyrus says. Any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord his God be with him. So let me put all that in a nutshell. That may not have come out well. Uh, the, the people are, um, they're warned that if they, if they rebel against God, they'll be taken away. Just as it had been prophesied, that happened. The Babylonians come in and they take them away 800 miles. They're now in Iran. Uh, the Persians then take over the Babylonians and there's a new king. All that, this is the point. And 70 years after they had been taken captive, just as Jeremiah had prophesied, King Cyrus, a, a Persian king, said, okay, you can go back to Israel. And so they send a couple of groups back, one led by Zerubbabel, isn't that an unfortunate name? I hope that's not what you named your kid. Um, and the other one, Ezra, uh, and, and Zerubbabel and Ezra lead these, uh, lead these groups back. They were somewhat successful, but not very successful. And now that's where we are, Nehemiah chapter one, let's read what happens. 
It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, now let me just catch you up there, Chislev, this would have been November, December. Uh, there, the Jewish months don't exactly line up with ours, so it would have been a little bit of November, a little bit of December for us. Uh, Susa is near the Iranian city of Shush today, modern city. Uh, it's a long ways away, and that's uh, where the winter palace for King Cyrus uh, was located. Uh, verse 2. Uh, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived uh, the exile. And so these people come in, uh, Nehemiah sees them, he recognizes that they are some of the Jews that have just returned from, from Jerusalem, so he says, how are things going? How, how are things back in Jerusalem? And they said to me, verse 3, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. And so they report to Nehemiah that things are terrible. Though Zerubbabel has gone back with his, his team and uh, uh, Ezra has gone back with his team, things are still in terrible disarray. There's no security. The walls are down. The people are vulnerable. They're oppressed. See, at this point, uh, Israel, Jerusalem, was just really a land of nomads. There were these warlords, Sanballat and Tobiah and some others, and, and it was just a, a place of anarchy, and it was still that way. And so now Nehemiah gets the report. Verse 4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. And I said, and here's, here's this prayer, this one of the most important prayers in the Bible. I said, verse 5, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess to you the sins that we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have, have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. And so he begins this prayer. God, you are a good God and you are a God who keeps your word. But we're in a terrible situation and our people are scattered. And it's our fault. You told us this would happen if we sinned. And we did sin. But now he begins to... Uh, bring his plea, his request. Please remember, he says in verse eight, what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are among, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. So God had promised that he would bring the Jews back to Israel. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people and you redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Here's the request. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to reverence your name and give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man, the king. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer was the person who would bring the food to the king. He also tasted the food to see if it was poisonous. Uh, he, he was a person who had a pretty close relationship to the king, and so he's praying that the king would give him uh, compassion. 
Now let's read a few, a few verses further because I want you to see what happens. It says, during the month of Nisan, so this would have been March and April, about four months later, he'd been praying for four months. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king, and I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And so if you were someone who served the king, you couldn't be sad when you went before the king, lest you be executed. So it was a terrible thing. It was a dangerous thing to go in sad before the king. But he does. He's sad because of his, um, of his people and the, and the condition of Jerusalem. He says, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So that's the crux of the matter. He's sad because Jerusalem is in disarray. Verse 4, then the king asked me, what is your request? And so I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king. Now let's stop there and I'm anxious to get to our outline, but let me just point something out here. We see that Nehemiah prays this prayer beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. Very important prayer. I would encourage you to go home and just read it over and over. You read this prayer every day for a week. It will, you will see things in this prayer that you won't see just in a day or two of reading it. And it will benefit your praying. So he prays this prayer then. Then he prays for four months. He's weeping. He's sad. He prays. We'll see in a moment if we have time what he prayed for. And then in verse 5, he prays this very quick prayer. The king asked him a question and he said, and it says he, he prayed to God. It's just like a four second prayer. Oh God, here it goes. Give me some, uh, give me some wisdom and give me favor with the king. He prays this short prayer. And then let's just continue to read. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. So there's the question. I want to go rebuild the walls. Send me. Verse 6, the king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? And so I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. And so I'll give you the rest of the story. And we're, it's going to take a few weeks to develop all of this. But he goes uh, to Jerusalem. He identifies the problem. He rebuilds the walls. The people are secure. Uh, the, the, the revival breaks out in, in, in Jerusalem. Wonderful things happen. He is remarkably successful in a very short period of time. The question that we want to answer first this morning is how was he so successful? What were the first steps that Nehemiah took to find such extraordinary success? Well, number one, he, he, he knew this principle. You are where you are for a reason. Nehemiah must have been frustrated, and the scriptural evidence is that he was frustrated, that he was where he was. I mean, here he is, a servant to the king. Here he is, just a, a waiter for the king's food when he wants to be in Jerusalem helping with the problem. They had already sent two other groups in to Jerusalem, uh, led by Zerubbabel and Ezra, and he wasn't included in either one of those groups. He's stuck 800 miles away. That's not where he wants to be. He wants to be there doing something to solve the problem. Now, many of us, 
Many of you, there are times in life when we wish we were somewhere else. We wish we were doing somewhere something else. We wish we had greater opportunities. We wish there was another chance. And that's where Nehemiah was. But he, he learned this lesson that where you are, you are there for a reason. God has put you there and God put him there. Here's what had happened. He was on the king's wait staff. He demonstrated integrity and trustworthiness. He was noted, notif, uh, noticed by the Persian officials. He was promoted. He came a, became a cupbearer to the king. And, and then he had an opportunity. <clears throat> because of his relationship now with the king, he had an opportunity to submit this, this big request. Don't think that you have to wait until your circumstances change for you to start down the pathway for success because God has ordained and orchestrated the circumstances in your life right now, right where you are. You don't have to wait. And Nehemiah learned that. You are where you are for a reason. You know, there are a couple of different ways we waste our circumstances. First, we gripe and complain about our circumstances. Uh, we, we'll say, well, there are too many obstacles. There, there are too many limitations. There, there are too many problems. And we fail to see, no, God has given us those circumstances, those limitations, in order for us to use those. The, 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 the limitation Nehemiah had that he was a cupbearer to the king turned out to be the one key thing for him to be successful ultimately in rebuilding the walls because the king sends him with the resources that he needs. The other way we waste circumstances is we just wait for a future opportunity. We say, you know, when I get older, I'm going to do something for the Lord. When I retire, that's when I'm going to do something. When I get a job, when I have children, when I don't have children anymore, or when I'm in a better financial position, when I feel better, when I graduate next year, next semester, that's when I'm going to do something. But as long as that's our attitude, we will never get to the place where we begin the journey that God has called us uh, to go down. As long as we're thinking there will be a better time and a, uh, a more convenient time, no, God has arranged the circumstances for you to begin your walk of obedience, your walk of success right now. And Nehemiah discovered that. Nehemiah embraced that. You are where you are for a reason. He said, I'm here. I'm a cupbearer to the king. There's a reason. I'm going to figure out why that is. I'm not going to wait. The second principle that he embraced was this. Prayer always precedes progress. Now, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We've already seen the prayer that he prayed that takes up much of Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, Nehemiah understood that if you're going to be successful, you're going to be successful because you pray. He understood that how you start something is how you're going to do something. And he started this whole endeavor with prayer. If you're going to be successful, you must start with prayer. And he understood that the power that he needed, the solution, the answers that he required, that that was all with the Lord. He had to go to the Lord to find a way to accomplish this impossible task. He, he understood the Humpty Dumpty uh, approach, I think, to, to life. Do you know that nursery rhyme, Humpty Dumpty? Humpty Dumpty, I forgot it. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. There you go, you know this. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Now, there's something missing in that nursery rhyme. This is what pastors sit around and think about all day. Do you know that? <laughs> there's something missing. 
All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. What's the one thing that's missing? Who did they not go to? They didn't go to the king, right? I mean, they went to the king's horses and they went to the king's men and those couldn't, couldn't help Humpty Dumpty, but they didn't go to the king. See, so many times we face problems and obstacles in life, and so we go to, uh, to very helpful people around us. We go to counselors, and we go to doctors, and we go to friends, and we go to pastors, and we go to all these people around us that, that we hope can help us, and oftentimes they can. But, but listen, ultimately, we must go to the king, right? We must pray. Nehemiah had to get down on his knees. He was successful because he prayed. If you look at, and, and this would be arguable perhaps, but if you were to look at the two most successful leaders in the Old Testament, who do you think they would be? I mean, there are many people in the Old Testament that did great things, but there were two, two people, uh, happened to be men, they could have been women, but, but these two people, these two men, who did extraordinary things, but they had to actually, to be successful, they had to lead other people to serve. They had to lead other people to do things. Do you know who they are? I think the two greatest leaders in the Old Testament were Moses, because he didn't just do extraordinary things. He had to get two million people to come do it with him. And Nehemiah, who is going to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in two months, but he doesn't do it by himself. He has to get a bunch of people to help him who didn't want to help, by the way, just, just as uh, Moses' people didn't want to do what Moses wanted them to do. But Moses figured out a way to lead his people, and Nehemiah figures out a way to lead his people. So these are, I think, the two greatest leaders in the Old Testament. What characterizes their lives? What's different about Moses and Nehemiah from almost every other person in the Old Testament? It's their commitment to prayer. What you're going to see as we go through the 13 chapters of Nehemiah is that he prays and he prays in every chapter. He prays. He is a praying man. Nehemiah was not a great leader, not first anyway. He was a great prayer. And he prayed and God gave him influence. The key to everything he did was prayer. And if we're going to be successful, our key is going to be prayer. The same thing is true of Moses. I announced one time to the church I was pastoring that I was going to preach in three months or six months or something. I was going to preach a series on the life of Moses. And um, I had estimated it would take about 10 weeks. And so I made the, made the announcement. We had flyers and stuff and we put it in a calendar. And I really hadn't prepared. I mean, I, would, I was going to prepare. It was still several months away. But, but I hadn't worked out exactly what I would preach each week. I just, was, just announced that the, I felt the Lord was leading me to preach through the life of Moses. So when I began to study... Uh, the first thing I did is I, is I just read through the whole life of Moses in the Bible. Uh, and it's, uh, it's recorded in, in two or three different books and, and even a little bit in the book of Psalms. And so I just go through and I, I thought, well, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take a week and I'm going to read through everything that it says about Moses. And I'll make some notes about what are the most significant things in Moses' life. If you just read the chronological description of his life. And you know what? I, I discovered that there were about 12 or 13 key moments in Moses' life, and at every single one of those, he was praying. If you, if you preach, and this is what it turned out, I was surprised, but it, but it, was, in the Lord's, it was in the Lord's plans. I, I planned a 10 or 12 week series on Moses. It ended up being a 10 or 12 week series on prayer because that's all Moses ever did. Moses wasn't a great leader first. First, he was a great prayer. 
And so Nehemiah learned this principle, prayer always precedes progress. Let let me show you the two things he prayed for because this is important. He didn't pray for the same things we often pray for. First, he prayed for an opportunity. There is a difference between praying for a miracle and praying for an opportunity. Do you know that? There's nothing wrong with praying for a miracle. God tells us to do that, and God is a miracle-working God. But oftentimes, what we should be praying for is not a miracle, but it's an opportunity. Now, here's what it would have looked like had Nehemiah been praying for a miracle. He could have bowed his head and closed his eyes and put his fingers together, and he could have said, Lord, rescue those people in Jerusalem. Lord, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Lord, restore the city. Strengthen the people. Please, Lord. Amen. Now, what is that a prayer for? That's a prayer for God to somehow miraculously beam down from heaven new walls into the Jerusalem and make it happen. And God can do that. I'm not suggesting that's an improper prayer, but that's not the prayer of a leader. What did Nehemiah pray? Nehemiah prayed, Lord in heaven, is there any way that I could go to Jerusalem? Is there any way that we could come up with the resources so that I could swing a hammer, so that I could lead the people to build? Lord, give me a chance to go somehow. Get me out of of Susa and get me to Jerusalem so that I can be a part of the rebuilding of the walls. See, too many times we're just praying for God to do a miracle when we ought to be praying for God to give us an opportunity. Lord, give me, a, give me an opportunity. Don't just pray for, your, for God to give you a godly marriage. Pray that God will show you how you can build a godly marriage. Don't just pray that God will make you successful. Pray that God will show you the things you need to do in order to be successful. Pray for an opportunity. Well, let me go on to uh, principle number three very quickly. Uh, the third principle that Nehemiah embraced here, to get a good start, success begins when obedience begins. Now, as I said, everything works out in the end. This is a happy story. The walls are rebuilt. The city is restored. Revival comes. Nehemiah's dreams uh, are, are realized. The question, though, is when was Nehemiah a success? See, we often confuse success with the fruits of success. And it's easy to say that Nehemiah was successful when the walls were built and when, ne- when revival came. And he was successful then. But Nehemiah's success, this is so important for so many of us, Nehemiah's success began the day he was obedient. When he began to go down the path, when he began to pray, when he, when he surrendered and he said, Father, I'll go, just, just make, it a, make a way for me to go. When his obedience began, his success began. Too many of us never get started Because success looks so far away. But the truth is, you can be successful today. In God's eyes, you can be very successful today. If today you'll start down the path that God's called you. You're not successful when you get to the end of the path. You will be successful then. But you're successful today because you started down the path that God has has pointed you. Number four, very quickly, with God, nothing is impossible. That was the fourth a principle that Nehemiah embraced with God, nothing is impossible. Uh, there were so many obstacles that Nehemiah could have pointed to. Uh, he was a slave to the king. He had no ability just to take off work and go. Uh, the king was a wicked man, and Artaxerxes, the king at the time of Persia, 
uh, had already said that he did not want the walls rebuilt. And so, so Nehemiah is the slave, a slave to a king who already is, is opposed to, to the plan. Uh, Nehemiah lived 800 miles away. He had no money. He had no expertise. The people in the city of Jerusalem, uh, they didn't want to rebuild the wall. There had been people there for, for a few decades at this point. None of, nobody even cleaned up the streets at this point. So they had no desire to do it. Uh, there were enemies there around the city of Jerusalem that didn't want, want the walls to be rebuilt. He had all of these, all these obstacles. And he could have said, there's no way I can do this because of the obstacles. But that, church, is an insult to God. If God has caused us to do something, if God has pointed us in a direction, then there's no obstacle that's too great. There, there's no challenge that can't be circumvented. See, see he embraced this truth that, that leaders, that, that Christians who have full confidence in the Lord don't quit because they're obstacles. They don't quit because things are hard, but they recognize that with God, anything is possible. A great leader is not someone that has just the easiest life and everything lines up and, and, the, and the organization goes well and the career goes well and the, and the whatever you do goes well. No, a great leader is someone who faces obstacles but keeps his faith in God strong. And he holds on to God and he never stops because nothing is impossible with the Lord. Now, those are four very important principles, Nehemiah principles, to help us to take the first step towards success. But where is Jesus in all of this? We're not here for self-help. We're here because of Jesus. Well, let me show you two ways very quickly that Jesus is in this. First, the rebuilding and the restoring of Jerusalem was part of God's redemptive plan. So at this point, as I said a moment ago, Jerusalem is in ruins. There's really no nation there. There's really even, not even a city. Uh, they have managed to rebuild a temple at this point, uh, but it's, uh, it's not fully functional. There's just really not a population center. There, it's just nomads and warlords. I mean, it's, it's a mess. Now, God had a plan. In 400 years, Jesus was gonna be born in this region. And Jesus was going to minister in Jerusalem and in other places. And there needed to be a temple there that was functioning. There needed to be priests and high priests and Sanhedrin and all the different characters that we read about in the gospel. That all of that was, had to be in place. So what was going to happen? Well, Nehemiah, while he may not have fully realized it at the time, what he did in the rebuilding of Jerusalem was a key step, a critical step, in the redemptive plan of God. The re, part of the reason we're saved today, I mean, it's because of what Jesus did, but the, but the things that Jesus did couldn't have happened had Nehemiah not first restored the city of Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah was a part of the redemptive plan that led us to be able to be forgiven and rescued and saved today. Now, here's the lesson we learned from that. God has called you to be a part of the redemptive plan of other people. I mean, there are people that God wants to do something extraordinary in their lives. There are people that God wants to lead them to Jesus, 
But before that can happen, there are things you've got to do. You've got to be successful at the places where God has called you to serve. You've got to follow the things that God has put on your heart. And you may not be able to see the connection, but you excelling in the things that God has given to you will be a part of the redemptive plan for somebody else. You being obedient will lead them a year or two, five years down the road to coming to know Christ as their Savior. We must do the things God has called us because that's a part of the redemptive plan of the Lord. Now, there's another way we see Jesus in this. The rebuilder of the walls of Jerusalem wants to rebuild the broken walls in your life. You know, when we read through the book of Nehemiah, we put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes. And we're going to do that all the way through the book. We're going we're to see Nehemiah face some obstacles. And we're going to say, well, you know, I faced some of the same obstacles. So I'm going to see what Nehemiah did and I'm going to do what he did. And so we're going to get to some very specific things about how to overcome obstacles and how to handle critics. And, and Nehemiah faced all that. We're going to see what he did and we're going to do. So we put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes. But Nehemiah doesn't really represent us, does he? Nehemiah represents the Lord. Nehemiah shows up to this broken down city of Jerusalem and he restores it. He rebuilds the walls. He removes the rubble in the streets and Nehemiah restores the city. Well, Jesus wants to be the restorer in your life. He wants to pick up the, the rubble in your life. He wants to rebuild the walls. He wants to strengthen you. That's what we see here in Nehemiah. Not just the story of a person being successful in an endeavor, but we see the story of what the Lord wants to do as he rebuilds our lives. Now, it was an unlikely thing that the walls would get rebuilt around Jerusalem uh, for several reasons. Number one, the rubble had been there a long time. This, the city had been a mess for a long time. Number two, there was no apparent way to solve the problem. There was no clear way to fix this. It, it was too big of, a, big of a mess. And then also, the rubble was there because of the action of the Jews. It was their fault, 100% their fault. The city fell because God told them if they rebelled, it would fall, and they did, and it, and it fell. Now, maybe you're thinking for your life, first of all, my life has had some rubble in it, and the walls have been torn down for a long time. It's hopeless. Or maybe you're thinking, there's no apparent way for me to get out of what I'm in. I'm in such a mess, Pastor, that I don't see any way forward from here. Or maybe you're thinking, God's not going to rescue me because the mess I'm in is all my fault. Well, listen, all of that was true of Jerusalem. But God rescued them. And God will rescue you if you'll call on him. If you'll embrace these principles, if you call upon the Lord, then God will remove the rubble and restore the walls in your life, just as he did for Nehemiah. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father in heaven, we all want to be successful, successful for you, bringing honor and glory to you. We, we know that oftentimes people are not. The obstacles seem too great and they quit or there always seems like there will be a more convenient time, so they, they wait. Or, or, or they try to do it themselves, and, and, and they don't start with prayer, and so they, they flounder and they fail. Father, you have given each of us a desire to do something. Help us to embrace the principles that Nehemiah embraced. There will be many more things to learn, of course, Lord, but 
But Nehemiah had the right start because he embraced these four principles. I pray that we will do the same. And Father, for those who feel like their lives are just like the city of Jerusalem, walls broken down and rubble in the streets, I pray that they will recognize today that there is hope in you. That the, that the walls haven't been broken down too long and it doesn't matter that it was their fault that you're willing to restore and to rebuild and that they will call on you in prayer this morning to do that. That they will trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior for forgiveness and that they will embrace and surrender to all that you would have them to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.